Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is all the science that you could possibly want and maybe a little bit more. I don't know. Um, joining me as always is the effervescent Claire. Oh, hello, Claire. Chris. Hello. It's good to be back. It's I mean, I mean, that, just well, you know, just between the weeks. From, from, that... <laughs> yeah, between weeks, you know. Uh, it's but, the highlight hey, of my week. I'm glad to be back as well. Whew, that was a that was a long week. <laughs> Did you have a good week? Yeah, it's been a lovely week. Yeah, okay. um, and made even better because this week on the show, I have the wonderful Kate Flood, aka Compostable Kate, who is joining me to talk about the science of composting because Chris we all have questions around composting and Kate Flood has just put out um, a book called The Compost Coach. She's going to be coming on the show and talking to us about composting. And I'm sure there'll be much more than that. And how about you Chris? What have you got well, for us this week? Well I have a story that may have telegraphed a previous week. I mentioned how there had been a study about uh, cats taste for tuna um, which I thought did. was a fairly – it was a story that intrigued me. It was a, uh, it, it was a story that I pretty much bullied you into doing, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. It, look, it's a, it's not the most earth-shattering story because, yes, <laughs> use flash cats like Juna. But um, someone has done some research on this, and it is actually quite interesting, I suppose, if you're into this cat taste bud thing, which I am. I've done stories on cat taste buds before. You have. And, yeah, and so I'm keen to kind of follow this up with a bit more – details. So, on with the show. Have you ever had a compost that is a bit stinky or maybe some fly larvae in your compost and wondered if that's normal? Well, this week we have author and compost educator Kate Flood, aka Compostable Kate, to take us by our gardening gloved hand and answer some of these questions and a little bit more on the science of composting your waste in your home. Kate, Welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you, Claire. It's lovely to be able to chat to you about my very favourite subject. <laughs> I said in the intro, you know, fly larvae and a bit stinky because obviously these are problems that I have had <laughs> with my compost. But um, maybe we should start with the basics. Can you explain to us how composting works, the science behind it, you know, who might not be familiar with the process? What are we sort of aiming to do when we're throwing out scraps and, you know, allowing the magic to happen? It's such a good place to start because I think we've got such a strong emphasis as a society to not put our food waste into our garbage bin because we know if it heads to landfill and gets piled on top of um, one another in in plastic bags in that oxygen-free condition, mm. uh methane's released and also a really toxic lactate, which is like uh, landfill juice, basically, mm. that can pollute our soil and our oceans and our waterways. Right. Um, and so I think we, we always are talking about composting food waste, which is essential. You know, it's a really important form of climate activism that we can all be doing in our own backyards. But if we just talk about composting food, we're missing a really, really important balance. So starting with the, the four universals, 
ingredients of beautifully made compost that's not going to be stinky and hopefully won't have too many flies. We need to think about the balance of our our greens and our browns. So in compost language, we talk about our greens being full of nitrogen. And it's a little bit of a misnomer Mm. because things that are full of nitrogen are not always coloured green so they can be our food scraps which could be you know a a multi-color of scraps and things like manure or coffee grounds or seaweed or grass clippings basically anything that was recently alive and is juicy that's our nitrogen and the microbes in our compost need access to nitrogen to multiply Uh, but then they need a balance of carbon so that's our brown so that's our dead dry materials so my favorite sources of carbon to balance my juicy nitrogen rich scraps are aged wood chips Mm. uh, brown autumn leaves that I rake up in autumn and store for the rest of the year Uh you can also use manufactured paper products so um, some safe sources of paper uh, newspaper brown cardboard boxes ripped up Bleached office paper actually nowadays is is relatively safe to use. So it used to be back in the day the bleaching process would involve chlorine and that would produce lots of dioxins which are really carcinogenic. But now there's chlorine-free bleaching processes and most of the paper that we get in Australia is produced that way. But all of this stuff I outline in my book because there's, you know, there's lots of variables about what we can and can't add into our compost. But we also need to be balancing greens and browns with lots of Air. So air is our third ingredient of all composting systems. They need to be oxygen rich. So you can turn your compost with, I like these giant corkscrews. Oh, I love them. Popping uh, bottles of wine open. They're (laughs) for aerating your compost. So you tunnel them through, twist them through the organic matter in your compost, pull it up, and that creates lots of air pockets. Very Um, satisfying. It is. It's real. And that's if you have stinky compost, that's a sign that it's becoming anaerobic, which means oxygen free. And it's a good sign to to get out there and turn your compost. And the fourth ingredient is water. So all biology and all life on earth needs access to moisture. And our compost is no different. So we need to keep the scraps in our compost moist but not wet so if they become too wet then the wrong bacteria can proliferate Mm -hmm. we want it to feel like a wrung out sponge so if you nail that nitrogen carbon oxygen and water you're going to be really heading towards making some great compost oh i mean it's a beautiful recipe for life isn't it it is and look imagine if all recipes could just be that easy just with (laughs) ingredients Brilliant. Okay. Well, I mean, that, you know, brings us down to the, you know, the bare bones science of it. Um, in your time as an educator, what have sort of been some of these sort of misconceptions about composting that you've come across? Well, I think that people often just think about their compost bin as an inert static pile of Mm. scraps and they don't realize that what's actually breaking down that organic matter so organic matter comes from plant and animal sources um is for the most part bacteria and fungi so things that we actually can't see so yes there's going to be composting worms and mites and beetles um, and black soldier fly larvae lots of different life in your compost bin that you can see but the vast majority of decomposition happens with these microscopic creatures. Mm. And I think that's something that people don't really think about. You know, we kind of think, oh, this is just 
breaking down because nature just breaks stuff down. But when you actually think about the fact that your compost is full of life and then you think, well, you, I need to provide a balanced diet for this life in my compost, that's a really good way to to kind of get your head around some of the problems. So, you know, if, if you only add food waste, um, so that's full of nitrogen, that's going to be a real problem. It's going to become stinky. It's going to break down... <clears throat> in a slimy anaerobic way but if you add an equal portion of those carbon rich materials then that's going to create the right balance uh, so i really like to to think about the life in my compost and actually one of the major ways there was an interesting study that said just having a compost pile or bin or uh, worm farm in your backyard is a really significant way to add to increase the biodiversity of an urban landscape uh, right. because there is just so much life in a compost bin um and I also think a bit of a misconception can be that there will just be worms in there, but really there's going to be a whole heap of different composting critters. And without all of those compost creatures that form what's called a soil food web, your compost is not going to work because you need to have um, those different levels within a compost food web. So the predators, we need to have who eats what, we need mm-hmm. to have the creatures that eat, eat each other's um, messes. And, (laughs) you know, it it works as a web and you can't just expect your compost bin just to have friendly little worms in there. We we need all of that biodiversity in there to break down all of the different scraps that you might be adding into your compost. And another myth, I think, is people always just assume there's certain things that you can't add into compost. Mm. So whether that's uh, citrus or onions and garlic or meat, or some people think rice because, you know, rice is a, one of those things that can grow salmonella really quickly. But my attitude to all of this is where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. And what, if something was alive, it can be composted um, and composted safely. So there's there's different uh, methods to do that. So whether you're using bakashi, which is a form of pre-composting organic matter, it's a um, style of of fermenting your food waste that originated in Japan. And you can add everything into your bakashi bin, so things that people think are harder to compost, so citrus and um, chilli scraps and oily scraps and meat, all of that can go into your bakashi bucket. Uh, You add an inoculated medium, so it's usually wheat bran that has bacteria that produces lactic acids and specially selected yeasts in it. Mm. Um, And it's kind of like making sauerkraut with your scraps. And then you can dig a hole in your backyard and bury it or you can add it to your hot or cold compost bin. Or if you live in an apartment, you can actually process it in a soil factory, which is like a big plastic tub that you add a little bit of soil to from a mate's backyard and then pour the bakashi in and it will break down and you can do all of that inside. So I have written a book on on composting. I wanted to, didn't want to say, oh, yeah, you can do this inside. And I practice all of these processes. So it's totally doable even if you don't have a backyard. They're yeah. common myths that get thrown my way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I did a story on what to do with used oils, um, and you know, talking about what happens when oils going down the sink, and you know, yes. the, the issues in um in sewage systems of fatbergs, um, yes. and you know, the the prevailing wisdom is to throw the oil out, but with a bakashi system, can you put? you know, use sort of greases and oils, can you put them into the bakashi bin? 
yes, you can, and and I do. And um, actually, the Bakashi produces um, this lactate Bakashi juice, and it's full of the the microbes that are fermenting your waste, and a really it's a really good byproduct of the um, Bakashi system because. If you can use it as a water it down and then use it as a soil conditioner, but if you um, save it up and pour it neat down your drains, last thing at night, so don't run any extra water through it. The um, microbes and the enzymes in the the um, it's called EM effective microorganisms in that mix actually eat through a buildup of oil and hair in your drains, and it's safe for septic systems as well. Wow! Um, so yeah, it's great. Look, you couldn't. If you were deep frying um, chips in a cafe and then you have a huge amount of oil to deal with, you can't add huge amounts of oil into a Bakashi system because it, yep. it would just drain through. There's a false bottom with holes. It would just drain through that. But in terms of a domestic setting where you've, you've got um, grease and oil that, you know, you might be dealing with in in cooking, home cooking, that's absolutely fine to be adding into your Bakashi bin and it will break down well. That's fantastic advice. Now, I, and, and I know you're a big fan of worm farms um, as well as compost systems. What would you recommend for people if they were sort of starting out on their compost journey and what's the sort of main differences there? Worm farming is awesome and it's it's I really think it's a great place to start, especially if you have small children because children are innately really curious in, in all different life forms and they they lots of kids haven't developed the ooh factor which sometimes adults can feel about worms. So if you've got some kids, I reckon starting with worms is a really fun thing for them to get involved in. I really like in-ground worm farms. So I actually explain in my book how to make one really simply and you can make it for free. So you get a food-grade bucket from your local cafe. So often cafes have large littered buckets that may have bulk amounts of, of tahini or mayonnaise or yogurt in and take that home, give it a wash, use a drill and with about an eight millimetre drill bit and drill lots of holes all over it so there's entry and exit points for those worms. And then if you have uh, space in your backyard, you can dig a hole and bury that littered bucket or if you live in an apartment or just have a small balcony space, you can put this into a garden pot um, and backfill it with soil and then you set it up in the the same way that you'd set up a above ground worm farm so it needs to have carbon rich bedding materials so that Mm. could be dried up um, shredded leaves it could be some newspaper Um, often commercial worm farms come with a coconut core block Um, so you could add that but I don't like encouraging people to to get use coconut coal because it's a commercial product that it's actually involves a lot of water in the processing and growing Mm -hmm. of it. It is a byproduct from, from coconut farming, but there's lots of chemicals that are used to process it. So if you can get carbon sources that you might've put in your recycling bin or you've raked them up from your backyard, that's, that's great worm bedding. So you add that in and then you keep that nice and moist because worms breathe through their skin and they need to have moist conditions to be able to do that. If the bedding dries out, then the worms will die. Um, you can add a handful of worms from a friend's worm farm or you can buy um, worm eggs or live worms commercially. They have to be compost worms, so not the not earthworms that you're digging up from your backyard. Mm. Um, and then slowly start feeding them your scraps. Um, and the thing about worm farming 
one of the major things that people get wrong is when you when if you're reading about worm worm farming, it's um, stated that worms can eat half of their body weight per day in scraps. But that's a mature worm, and it's a worm that's in a farm that is fully thriving. And right. um, people often overfeed worms, and that's that really becomes a worm killer. So use your skills of observation and have a look. Once they've eaten about 50 to 70% of the scraps that were already there, it's time to add more. And you also need to add not just your food waste into a worm farm, you still need to add carbon because worms and compost microbes work hand in hand. So worms don't have teeth. They won't just chow down on your uh, your banana skin. They need to wait until compost microbes have colonised the, the surfaces of the food scraps and compost microbes uh, produce enzymes that break down the outside surface of the scraps and they turn them into like a slurry texture and so then worms come in and suck that up and compost microbes need nitrogen and carbon. So you have to make sure you're adding that each time you're feeding mm-hmm. your worms and, and that the, the composting bacteria as well. That's um a fascinating insight. I hadn't hadn't thought about that that sort of symbiotic relationship happening there. Yes, yeah, it's so like you know that's the thing. We're petri dishes of bacteria up here. Yeah. Like there, there's bacteria everywhere on on all surfaces, and you know we we're not operating in a vacuum when we're composting. We need that that bacteria working with us and working with our worms, um, working with the, the other critters that will end up in a worm farm or a composting system. And and that comes back to that soil food web. So um, mm. there's those different levels of consumers who are breaking down the waste or, or yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting to think that, you know, I think humans like, well, we simplify things because we can just see the worms and we're like, oh, yeah, worms are just eating the scraps. But actually, there's much more of a, a web of connectivity and partnership that's happening in these systems. Now, Kate, as I mentioned in the intro, you're an author. You've got a new book out, The Compost Coach. Where can people find it? You can find it from your local independent bookshop. That's where I'd love people to grab a copy. You can also get it from, you know, the big baddies like um, Woolies or, or, or Target <laughs> or Booktopia. But I also recommend that if you're not wanting to commit to buying it because I totally get cost of living crisis, go to your local library and borrow a copy. And if they don't have it in yet, you can order, get your copy to, sorry, get your library to order in a copy because it's it's great being part of that sharing economy. You know, you don't need to own it yourself. You can just borrow it for a couple of weeks and have fun getting dirty, reading all about compost, worm farming and regenerative gardening. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, We love libraries. They're so good. Uh, Well, hey, thanks so much for joining us on Lost in Science today, sharing your incredible compost wisdom, um, taking us all on that journey. And, yeah, um, check out Kate's book, The Compost Coach, either at your local library or independent bookstore. Who are you who are so wise in the ways of science? A most distinguished scientist whose name we know, even in the wild Transylvania. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science, and I find myself once again talking about cats and what they do and do not taste. So let's let's um, let's give a bit of a refresher. Claire, what kind of taste buds are there? Oh, so you've got sweet, salty, mm-hmm. bitter, sour, and umami, which is like the savoury taste bud, right? Yeah, very good. Very oh, good. That is great. essentially the five canonical tastes. 
uh, that humans have and most other animals or mammals at least seem to share although there are very there are variations so the the taste buds that we have are kind of your your basic ones and because we eat a lot of different foods and generally this is your basic toolkit that mammals have but some specialized mammals lack some of these taste buds because they don't need them Right. It's the kind of thing that, yeah, if you don't need it, then you don't bother producing it anymore. You know, it's just sure. sort of like genetic drift, those sort of, these sort of things. Yeah. And dolphins are remarkable because they don't need to taste a lot. They basically catch their food. They see a fish. They swim after it. They swallow it whole, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really necessary for them to taste the fish. The, and the theory that the reason they can taste salt is that they can, it's purely about determining the quality of the water that they're swimming through. You know, and other many other animals do need the taste buds. So, yeah, I mean, salt obviously is something that we share with the dolphins. Um, salt is one of those minerals that that we need. Um, we can also taste sugar, which is clearly a high um, a high calorie food. You know, something that's you yeah. know sweet things have a lot of a lot of uh, energy in them. Um, we can taste sour, which is often things that are going off. A sour, again, uh, for the dolphins, because your fish don't tend to, I mean, rotting fish aren't swimming around in the ocean, I guess. Mm-hmm. And bitter, we also taste bitter. And bitter is often, I guess there's a lot of poisonous compounds, uh, bitter tasting. Uh, you think right. of the old bitter almond kind of smell of cyanide, mm. they always talk about the mm. old detective novels. And then there is umami, and umami is kind of the fifth, uh, the fifth taste bud, which was discovered later than the other ones. Mm. And there was some debate. There's also, I should say, there's some debate there might be other taste buds as well, but these are this is the official fifth one. Uh, and it essentially tastes, as you said, savoury. It's basically a protein-detecting taste bud. So it tastes certain amino acids and nucleotides uh, that are present in proteins. So the main ones that humans taste, are, one of the main ones is glutamate. Um, which is all glutamic acid is the amino acid. And um, this is why things like monosodium glutamate gives things an extra savoury taste and why that is appealing in food because it gives us that glutamate mm. chemical, which is the taste with umami. Or MSG for short. Yeah, MSG. So, yeah, umami is that kind of that more protein, savoury. Yeah, it's why it's associated with those kind of hearty, main meals as opposed to your, your sweet desserts. So, okay, so those are your basic ones. Now, cats are carnivores, as anyone who's owned a cat is aware. Yeah. And so they have a limited, more limited diet. And so they have evolved to not need the, the sweet taste bud. Mm. And some, yeah, some carnivorous species are, are like this. Uh, carnivorous mammals are like this and don't need the, the sugary because they don't eat anything. They don't eat fruit. They don't eat anything sweet. Meat is not sweet. Um, although there was, there was a study, I think, that looked at lions and maybe I think lions have still had the sugar taste buds and the theory is because zebra meat is a bit sweet. Wow. But I sort of call for my cat... Um, uh, sweetness tasting research. I'll have to check that one. Fact check that one. Though, but might be more research on that, on that topic. Since. But the normal domestic house cat does not eat zebras and does not need to taste uh, sure. taste sugary things. Yeah. So the main, the most important one you think for cats is going to be the umami, because they eat a lot of meat. Yeah. So this recent study was one that was looking at 
essentially the umami taste buds. And they, it was like, I should point out, a bit of a disclaimer here, this study was funded by a pet food company mm, who okay. have an interest in working out what cats like to eat. Right. So yeah, they were they were looking at cat taste buds. They had a in the in the research there was a, a six year old cat that had uh, died from or had been euthanized. Sorry for other causes. It was not. It was you know humanely yeah. Yeah. Uh, euthanized, um, not for the purpose of this study, but they basically examined its taste buds and tried to work out what uh, yeah what genes are expressed, what chemicals were operating. Uh, being detected by the taste buds, and what they found was that indeed there were there were umami taste buds. Yeah, makes sense. Um, but they had strange mutations, and they did not react well to glutamate, like oh. ours do. And those, they kind of like, well, that's a bit of a surprise. Um, what's going on here? Are they? You know, surely they should need to be able to taste umami. What's wrong? Why, are they, why would they have defective umami taste mm. buds? But they then experimented with basically different amino acids to see what they would respond to. And they did things like um, they put the different chemicals in bowls of water and see which bowls of the water cats would prefer. Again, I think I mentioned in a previous episode that I did this experiment at home when I had a dog. Um, I'd read about the cat um, sugar test. They did a similar kind of thing. They put sugar water, and cats did not have any preference for sugar water. I tried it with my dog, mm. um, and the dog definitely preferred sugar water. So this is a this is a long standing experimental technique for what flavors what animals, animals like. Yep. And what they found is particular um, particular chemicals. These ones were histidine and inosine monophosphate. These are the histidine and inosine are other types of amino acids. So they are indeed in the right family of chemicals for your umami flavoring, but they happen to be the compounds that are at particularly high levels in seafood and particular in tuna. Ah. So it seems that cats have, for whatever reason, evolved a preference for the chemicals that are found in tuna meat. Right. And in any other meat or specifically, are they just naturally high in tuna meat? Or are well, there you get, a range of different meats that they. I mean, I guess you get these you get these um, these compounds in lots of different proteins, lots lots of different meats. They just uh, happen to be particularly high in tuna, so they're kind of optimized for tuna. So it's not to say that they can't taste other meat; they're just optimized for tuna. Mm. Is, is I guess what we're saying. So then this is so this is why I'm saying what we're looking at is the how cats taste um, taste tuna. The why is less clear. Um, cats were believed to have been domesticated about, around 10,000 years ago um, from a wild cat that lives in Turkey. This is from genetic analysis of cats and perhaps evolved further in ancient Egypt. Um, but yeah, it's not clear. These are kind of arid regions generally. So you wouldn't think a lot of tuna around in those regions. Although there is, uh, there was an article about this particular study in the journal Science and they illustrated it with a hieroglyphic uh, from ancient Egypt, I think about 1500 BCE, that showed a cat eating 
a fish. <laughs> so presumably, at least in ancient Egypt, they were at least feeding cats fish. Or oh. Cats were eating fish and attaining fish in some ways. I mean, it, it still is a bit me because you think about how the theory behind how cat domestication is basically they domesticated themselves. That humans were doing agriculture, there were you know rodents and other pest animals then the cats just kind of moved in to take care of those pests and were adopted by 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 humans so you know how they got to be hanging out around fish rather than rodents Mm. or grain and those sort of things is a bit of a mystery there have been other studies looking at i think medieval cats and their diets and they were eating hanging around you know fishing wolves and those sort of things and eating fish so there's certainly a long history documented you know genetically or chemically in the medieval times documented through hieroglyphics in ancient egypt of cats eating fish just how that came to be their preference uh is not clear but clearly it's quite possible they've been selected over time by this being a major part of the diet that the cats prefer fish have and who particularly i guess the really strong taste of fish like tuna have been the ones who've yeah been selected for and, and bred over the centuries that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation, at the studios of 3CR, and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight@gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR, Or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1. Or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get Lost in Science.